Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is Friday, October 21st, um, a week away from a big day for me. I'm trying to, <laughs> it is. trying to get some last minute things together, but I'm very, very excited about uh, the conversation we're, we're going to have. And um, yeah, why don't you tell the people, what are, what are we talking about this week? We're talking about Ricky getting married a week from today, and that's the most important thing that's going on. So super, super exciting next week. Uh, in addition to Ricky getting married, we are really excited and lucky to welcome Joan Benaki, who is a longtime columnist at the Boston Globe, to this episode. We felt like this was, Joan was like the perfect balance. We had Steve on a few weeks ago, Steve Kornacki, to talk about the a national perspective on the midterms and then Samantha Gross also from the globe to talk very Massachusetts specific. And, and Joan's been around covering both local and national politics for several decades now. And she's going to give her perspective on some of the national trends that she is seeing and has seen and same thing in, in Massachusetts. So it's going to be really excited to get her perspective and her expertise on everything that, she's seeing and how that ties into maybe some more longer term trends that she's seen. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, just adding to the list of really, really impressive guests that we've gotten over the past couple of weeks. Um, if people are listening, they should be listening. Share, share this with your friends. Let people know. Like this is, well, I, I don't know, Ricky, like Kornacki, Samantha, Joan, it's, uh, it's I feel like I feel like we've we've been you and I have been very fortunate, and so I, I hope the listeners have enjoyed it as much as we have. Yeah, I mean, I feel like tips for the folks out there: if you want to talk to very cool and impressive people, start yourself up a podcast and start start sending out those invites. Right, right. This is really just a selfish way to, for us to talk to like really smart people uh, under the guise of a podcast. <laughs> All right, but as a reminder, before we do bring Joan on, that this podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen here at Cannon Hill Woodworking. Uh, if you've been listening, you know that they've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two ends. You can check them out on Instagram or visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Uh, Ricky and I actually had the chance to run into the founder of that company last weekend. He is the one that so generously reached out to sponsor this podcast last year and he was saying that business is great. Um, he's you know hiring more workers and people continue to reach out. So they they do great work. You should definitely check them out, particularly as we get into holiday season. If you need a new table, if you're having people over for Thanksgiving or something, this would be this would be the place to to go look. Yeah, nothing says I love you like a uh, like a custom dining table. And uh, you let them know that the uh, the boys from the gentlemen's disagree. Yeah, let them know. Let them know. But Ricky. I figured in honor of your wedding week, I would I would do a, a little little pun for you. So two trees, they met for the first time a couple of years ago and they really hit it off. They hoped that it could blossom into a beautiful relationship. And just like you and your soon-to-be wife, it did. 
Uh, you missed the blossom. Oh, oh, oh. oh yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, on that high note, better let's bring- tables than our jokes. Oh, there, my- there you go. Bring in Joe. All right, we are now thrilled to welcome Boston Globe columnist Joan Benaki to the program. For those of you who don't know Joan, she is a former researcher on the Globe Spotlight team. That team was made famous in the movie called Spotlight. Uh, but she, her work on that team earned her a Pulitzer Prize for a series that she contributed to on the MBTA here in Massachusetts. So. Joan is our first guest who has a Pulitzer. No big deal. Uh, but in addition to that, she has covered city, state, and national politics for the globe. She's created a business column that's explored the intersection between business and politics. And she now writes twice weekly for the op-ed page on the globe. Also, as a member of the Globe's editorial board, she helps formulate and write editorials. In addition to that, she is a graduate of Boston University, which, as Ricky pointed out to me, before the program, now makes it the third straight BU grad, in addition to Steve Kornacki and Samantha Gross, who have been on the program it's unintentionally, but credit to BU for churning out some pretty impressive people that cover politics. Uh, and most importantly to me, she is a Suffolk law grad, and I wore my my Suffolk Rams shirt uh, in, in honor of, of having Joan on the program. So, uh, Joan, we are thrilled to welcome you to the program. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for inviting me and go Rams. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Love that. Okay, so the reason we invited Joan, as I mentioned, is that she has experience covering both local and national politics and coming off two episodes where we had Steve to do like the, the national scale and, and Samantha to do very Massachusetts scale. Joan felt like the perfect balance as we head into the midterms in just two weeks now to give us you know, her perspective on both national and local politics. So Joe, I want to start with a question of abortion versus inflation as we head to the polls. So after the Dobbs decision came down in late June, Democrats just slowly but increasingly narrowed the the gap with Republicans. And it it felt like what was once going to be a red wave now might actually be maybe a little bit red, but maybe on a good night, a little bit blue. And it seemed like Democrats had overwhelmingly had an enthusiasm advantage over the course of the summer. That seems to be fading a little bit in the last few weeks as inflation has continued to remain really high and gas prices start to creep back up. And so what was once seem to be an election about abortion now increasingly seems to be an election about inflation. So what are you seeing? What are your thoughts on that two weeks out as we head to the polls? Where where do where do we kind of stand on that tension and what's on the ballot in, in a couple of weeks? Well, I don't want to say I told you so, but right after the Dobbs decision and everybody was just so you know certain that abortion was going to be this rallying cry that would change everything. I mean, I did some express some skepticism in a column that I wrote, um, you know, that it, it never really has before. And I mean, even I know that what the Supreme Court did was, you know, like obviously um, an earthquake, but even so, I kind of had my doubts. So you know, it doesn't surprise me. It's like, you know, timing in, in life and politics is everything. And maybe if Dobbs, you know, happened last week, <laughs> it's like the American attention span is so short. 
and what you feel threatened by, um, you know, may last a week. And for a while, I think it did seem like that was really carrying some momentum. And now, you know, the old, uh, you know, the gas prices are up. Inflation is what everybody is talking about. And that if you look at the polls and if the polls are telling, you know, the truth or, you know, or that flash, you know, that moment in time, you know, yeah, the Democrats are something to worry about right now. It's, you know, it doesn't look too good. Yeah, it's just remarkable. And again, credit to you. I think you were right. You wrote this column back in the summer about how this was a possibility. But it's it's just crazy how things shift so rapidly. And it was Republicans up until June, and it was Democrats up until maybe mid-September, October. And now it feels like it's shifting back. And um, it is just fascinating for people that like to watch it. But speaking of American short attention spans, arguably the most important thing going on in the world this year has been Russia's invasion of, of Ukraine. That has come up not at all in these midterm elections, despite the fact that the United States is pouring billions of dollars into Ukraine. And despite the fact that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has contributed greatly to food and energy shortages, which have like, contributed to the inflation that we're seeing. So why do you think we haven't seen really any mention of Ukraine during these midterms? I think that's a really interesting question. I mean, I guess maybe I'll just sort of trace it to my own um, you know, sort of reaction to what's happening there. And I don't think it's that different from the average person. When the invasion first happened, I was, you know, sort of consumed by the news, you know, rooting for the underdog, um, you know, just really, you know, following it and you know, like watching it on the news, reading every story. Then as it kind of got more depressing, I, honestly, I started turning away from it and, and even though I know it's an incredibly important story and I'm still rooting for Ukraine, um, I have to, I have to force myself for a variety of reasons to follow it and pay attention to it. And I, I think it also again speaks to the short attention span of Americans. We want an ending like, okay, all right. How is this going to end? What, why isn't Putin surrendering? You know, why isn't it over? And none of this is rational and it's very superficial thinking. But again, it's kind of the way people think in this country. It's far away. It's affecting us in a negative way in that it's affecting um, the price of gas in, in some way. So we just want it to end. At least that's my view of it. Sure. And just, I guess, a follow up question on that. Do you see any change coming to U.S. policy towards Ukraine, depending on how the midterm shake out? Well, I saw something um, yesterday, I guess, on Twitter or somewhere that Kevin McCarthy is saying that if the Republicans get control, um, you know, of Congress, that they would rethink the aid to Ukraine, which, you know, that that would be a huge shift. And and that would, you know, if that were to happen, I mean, I'm no... Um, expert on war or anything like that, but it seems like it would be good news for Putin. So yeah, I mean, I think that that um, Ukraine has as much riding on the midterms as, as anybody else. Sure. All right. And now I want to kind of shift back and get some of your expertise and perspective on Massachusetts and like the history of the Massachusetts delegation, the two parties here in Massachusetts. So when you, or at least when I think of Massachusetts politicians who at the federal level kind of think of these 
luminaries, these heavyweights like Ted Kennedy and like John Kerry and the Senate. And even in the House, you have people like Tip O'Neill and Joe Moakley and Barney Frank. Where do you see, obviously, the Massachusetts delegation is all Democratic right now. Where do you see the Massachusetts delegation nationally? Like, how, how much do we have similar power with people like Elizabeth Warren and Catherine Clark? And maybe we just don't consider them in the same ways. Or do you see us maybe diminishing in a little bit of power because we don't have those, the, the Kennedys and the, the O'Neills? Um, well, I think that's another interesting question. And I don't want to point out the obvious difference between men and women and how power is perceived, but it could be, it could be a little of that. I mean, I think the Elizabeth Warren um, situation is really interesting. When you think of, um, you know, when she ran for president in in 2020, from like sort of 2016 to 2020, she seemed to be sort of at the peak of her power and in, in a really important national figure. Um, and then, you know, she ran for president. It didn't go particularly well. I think she came in third in Massachusetts, which is her which is her home state, which isn't you know like a good showing. Um, so there's no question about it. I mean, her that's a reduction in clout. And where she goes from there, I don't really know. I mean, I look at her and I see that she's still a voice on the national stage. She's pushing for, you know, on student debt and on other issues that really matter to her. But is she the voice of the future? I don't know about that. I mean, they, you know, the Democrats kind of have an age problem, (laughs) 70 and older crowd. So, you know, on the national stage right now, I don't see her. I mean, I I think she's trying to find her footing right now and Mm -hmm. see if she can get back to where she was. As far as Catherine Clark, in that internal world in Washington, in Congress, I'm sure she's a very important person. But how much visibility she has nationally, how many people know who she is, um, you know, that's another question. But then again, I don't know. Maybe did did was Tip O'Neill a household word beyond Massachusetts? He was Speaker of the House. I mean, I think he had a certain amount of clout. It, it's like a Nancy Pelosi. Um, you know, everyone knows who she is. I don't think right. Catherine Clark's achieved that altitude. Right. And so I just kind of want to follow up on that because you wrote a column, I think just a couple of weeks ago, about the Cape Cod bridges and the bringing home the bacon type situation where Massachusetts politicians in the past perhaps we're better at that. So that's kind of what I want to get at too, is like the people that we have representing us now, are they able to do what our past politicians have been able to do for us? Well, um, of course, that columns like that make me beloved by our delegation. <laughs> <laughs> but I think it was a totally fair thing, you know, to ask at, in a moment of time, it would be unthinkable to think that Massachusetts couldn't bring home the bacon and get money for the Cape Cod Bridge. I mean, this had the backing of the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, the Baker administration, not to mention the entire delegation. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, on the, if you look at it that way, they don't have the, the cloud. 
I suppose if you go down the list of who got the money, there are probably all sorts of political reasons for why every project got the, and maybe they poured the money into, you know, sort of purple states or places, you know, thinking about the midterms. I didn't examine it that way. That would be, you know, that would be, you know, the next level of, of looking at who got the money, that there was probably a political reason behind every, I'm sure there was a political reason behind every one of those um, appropriations, but it's still, you know, it was a big project. um, And the fact that we didn't get it is not good news for Massachusetts. Do you think there's something about the, I don't know if it's kind of the recent dynamic, but like the, the liberal elites having, you know, Cape Cod, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, having that as kind of what people not maybe not necessarily within Massachusetts, but nationally, when they, you know, when you want to dump on Massachusetts or dump on sort of that, the liberal bastion that we are up here in the Northeast, Cape Cod, and then, you know, by extension, Martha's Vineyard gets into that. Do you think that 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 kind of uh, sort of identity politics, I don't know if that's maybe the right word in, in this instance, had has something to do with with how things unfolded? I, I I absolutely think so. I mean, I think that's an excellent point. And if you did look at the list, I, I can't remember all the places, but they were, they tended to be grittier urban places. And it, you know, it's a lot easier to make the case that they should get a new bridge than the, a bridge that connects Massachusetts to the Cape and then to the ferry to Martha's Vineyard and, and, and Nantucket. So that probably did play into it as well. I think what was interesting is that the Massachusetts delegation seemed very blindsided by it, though. They were really confident that they were going to get the money. So either they were led astray or they, you know, got took their eye off the ball or whatever, you know, metaphor or cliche you want to use. Um, they were surprised by it. And maybe they shouldn't have been for the exact reason that you just pointed out, that it just didn't make sense in the big political equation to say, yeah, we're going to give this money for a bridge to Cape Cod right now. And then, and then I guess along those lines, does it feel to you like this is a sort of a new phenomenon in politics, maybe that, you know, you do have more local congressmen and women say, you know, an AOC from New York or an Ayanna Presley here in Massachusetts that are kind of more concerned almost with, national perception of the democratic party and things like that, then maybe in the past, you know, you were able to be almost a no-name congressperson, but your entire career is focused on how do I deliver for my district and nothing else. Maybe not nothing else, but. Yeah. I mean, I, I agree with you, but then again, like you mentioned Ted Kennedy, who was able to straddle both worlds. And, you know, maybe again, that was just a phenomenon at the time. He had a last name that, you know, at the time was, you know, kind of magical in, in, you know, like what it conveyed to people. So he was a national figure. He pushed a national agenda. He was a voice on um, immigration reform, on education, on things like that. But at the same time, yeah, he, he also, you know, had the Kennedy compound on the Cape. So you'd be, aren't sure that there'd be money for the Cape Cod Bridge <laughs> if, if, if he were there. But I, I, I agree with you. And I, mean, I think the divide between in the de- Democratic Party right now, between the progressives and the, you know, sort of centrist um, Democrats, 
really, you know, probably explains a lot of what's going on as well. I mean, I don't know. I, if I recall, I think Iona Presley actually voted against the infrastructure bill because she didn't think it was, you know, was big enough. So when you have, you know, sort of people voting against something that was really important to the Biden administration, I'm not saying they didn't give money for the bridge for that reason, but who knows how much something like that plays into it. Sure. So to go to the other party here in Massachusetts, or at least what's left of it, what, what, I mean, it's, it would be too obvious to be like, what have you seen over the course of your time here? But could you maybe talk about some of the factors that have driven the Republican Party here in Massachusetts pretty much out of business? We had, as Ricky and I talked about with, with Samantha, four of our last five governors were Republicans. And while we are never going to, or never, never say never, but it doesn't seem likely that we're ever going to be a Republican or conservative state. Republican Party had some heft here in Massachusetts. It has none right now. What What are some of the reasons that you have seen for that decline? All right. Well, um, I, I like to, you know, you can describe me as a veteran, which means, you know, another word for being old. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so one of the first you know, governor, you know, campaigns that I covered was Bill Weld back in 1990. Mm-hmm. I think that was a year. Um, and, yeah, I mean, he was, you know, like social liberal, fiscal conservative, um, you know, sort of smart, funny guy who sang songs and, you know, the legislature got along with the Democrats in the legislature. And that's been the model that has worked. What is that, 30 years ago? Yes. Right. Yeah. Pre- predates yeah. you guys, right? Um, <laughs> Not quite, but we'll take it. <laughs> You'll take it. Well, yeah. you were in preschool or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that was the model and it worked really well. Um, you know, he was followed by Mitt Romney, who was a version of that only not as much fun to be honest um and he also was you know he also used massachusetts as just a you know a stepping turn stone to to make that run for president where he kind of then revealed more of his true colors as much more of a conservative i think you know as much more of a social conservative than weld was but again um you know he he was able to win and he is responsible for you know our health care that we have, Romney Care, which right. became Obamacare. That's yeah. you know that was you know a huge accomplishment that unfortunately, sadly, he ran away from when mm-hmm. he ran for president. Then we had Deval Patrick, Hope and Change, who you know predated the Obama Hope and Change campaign. Then we had Charlie Baker. Um, so you know we the Republicans know what model wins here. And this time around, they have deliberately chosen something that cannot win. So, you know, you guys tell me, I mean, how do you, where do they go from there? I, I, that's, I think that's a great question. I, I think it, it's either you continue doubling down on losing and just want people that want to hang on to power within a diminishing Republican Party, or you see that it didn't work at all and you hopefully start start anew and go back to what worked but right i mean right now they're they're in the double down mode right oh, sure. I mean, they've got yeah. like what three weeks until the election and they're in the double down mode um i'm guessing that neither of you watched the debate last night 
um, between Healy and, and Deal. Um, I watched most of it and I even, I, even I didn't watch all of it. Um, and, and he is, you know, he's trying now to focus, Jeff Deal is trying to focus on the economy, but it's too late because already has, he has Trump around his neck and he has abortion and those two things. I mean, the baggage is just, just too heavy and mm-hmm. he's not adept enough as a debater or a candidate to, um, you know, to offload them at this point. So the question, what happens? Where do they go from here? Does this this version of the Republican Party, which is basically on a, you know, like a death wish, do they just sort of fade away? And does a new emerge, you know, Republican Party emerge from the ashes? I don't know. I don't, I don't see the, you know, I don't see that happening right now, but maybe it could. Yeah, de- definitely to be determined after this. So to shift back a little bit to one of the main issues here in the midterms has been crime and Republicans have been hammering in addition to inflation has been crime and immigration, which are classic Republican talking points. But you've written several articles in the last few months about crime here in Boston. And it's also on the rise nationally, of of course, Ralph Boyd Jr., who used to be uh, an assistant U.S. attorney here in Massachusetts and then went on to be um, the assistant U.S. attorney for civil rights in the Bush administration, came and spoke at Suffolk last week. And he was saying, like people in Boston are freaking out because you guys are on pace for 40 murders, which is a lot. But he was like, DC is on pace for 300 murders this year. Baltimore, which is small in Boston, on pace for four. Chicago on pace for nine. So, Joan, like from your perspective, whether you want to talk about it with Boston or, or nationally, is there anything that you can like attribute? Is there anything that we're not doing well right now? Like what, what, what's going on with these, these rising crime figures across the country? Well, I've always been sort of fascinated by the, you know, the issue of crime in Boston, because it obviously has always been lower than everywhere else. Um, but I also, you know, feel that it's also just like easy to ignore, because it seems to happen somewhere other than where we work and go to school. And it just, you know, um, it lets everybody just, you know, sort of forget about it and and not care about it. Yet to the people who live in those neighborhoods, um, I mean, I think the last time I wrote, and I'm sure I've written it before, you know, somebody, I went to a community meeting and, you know, a woman said one shooting is too many. And when you hear, you know, gunshots going off and, and even if the, even if they're not fatalities, but they're, you know, hearing the sounds of guns and, um, you know, nobody wants to have to live like that. So it's always kind of interested me how we can just sort of, um, you know, sort of separate ourselves from what's happening in a part of, of mm-hmm. our city. Um, are we doing, you know, what can more can be done? I mean, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be writing a column. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'd be- giving lectures or I'd be doing models. I mean, I do think part of what's happened in Boston, I mean, I don't know if you are familiar with they called the Boston miracle back in the nineties. You should, you know, if you're not, you should Google it. It was when, I don't know what exactly what the numbers were at the time, but homicides were at the high point and the 10 point coalition, a coalition of ministers and politicians and sort of social justice people came together and came up with sort of a new mode of policing that became a national model. And um, it's kind of, it's kind of broken down with along the lines of a lot of ego and politics. And some of it quite honestly breaks down along the line between the progressives and like another way of thinking about crime, right? That, 
you know, like what should be prosecuted? Um, what, you know, like what's, when do you, you know, sort of go a route that's not um, punitive? Um, and like, and that's really, I think, an internal debate that's going on right now that's divided the city and the stakeholders and in, in how to address this, this case. And I, I want to find a way to write about it because I think it's really interesting. So do I. Yeah. I think that's the like Commissioner Brat, uh, Bill Bratton, right? In the right. broken glass kind of, we're going to prosecute all the small crimes. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I think that that's really interesting. I, I wonder uh, maybe a couple of things. And Brennan and I talk about this a lot, just in terms of how some of these ideas, whether it's potentially like the economy or sort of local crime, do can do elicit sort of, uh, you know, who do you hold accountable? And a lot of the times we're, we point towards the federal government, but something like kind of local crime issues are, are maybe not in that uh, vein. So, I mean, I, I guess this question is a little bit meandering, but like, how how high do you sort of feel that the issue of crime is on on voters' minds um, as they're going to these to the midterms and and how how does that you know come about? I mean, I think one one of the more famous cases, of course, like w- Willie Horton just derailing Dukakis's um, you know election chances, right? But so much of that, like these anecdotal evidence that kind of captures people's minds, but may not be really rooted in any sort of actual kind of cause and effect. Right. And it's also breaks down along race lines too. Um, the Willie Horton thing, which I, you know, covered when I covered the Dukakis campaign. Um, I'll, I'll get to that question, but one thing I just wanted to say, one person that you might want to think about for having on your podcast is, you know, Kevin Hayden, the DA who just, well, he'll, be the official DA after this race because because that race between Ricardo and Arroyo and Kevin Hayden is an illustration of exactly that you know like these two different worldviews of of you know like how you address crime in a city and what you do about urban violence and um, I think Arroyo was on the way to winning until he was derailed by those stories about you know like what happened or didn't happen you know, back in high school, which would be another podcast about media ethics and what's covered and not covered. But at any rate, I mean, that's that's really interesting. How much does crime factor into um, the election? Well, the Republicans are trying to make it that. And in states, in those places that you mentioned, like Chicago and Baltimore and, you know, places like that, where the numbers of fatalities are in the hundreds, you know, several hundreds, you know, yeah. I mean, I think it's a mistake you know, for Democrats to necessarily think that that's not going to, when you live in those neighborhoods and your neighborhood's torn apart by violence, um, you may have a tougher on crime approach than a lot of Democrats may understand or think. Um, I don't, I don't see that really happening right now in Massachusetts where that's the number one concern. It's easy, as I said, it's easy to compartmentalize and just say it's in a part of the city and it's really not that bad. The number is lower than it was last year. Yeah, we've got to do something, but it's not something that affects my life. Um, so I don't see it really um, playing into the the Massachusetts political scene right now. 
I'm meandering now, but I want to make one other point. Okay. Um, I do think that it's interesting. Mara Healy, you know, came in to meet with the Globe Editorial Board last week. Um, we ended up endorsing her, which is, of course, no surprise. And uh, Jeff Deal was invited, but didn't come. And that's not a surprise either, you know. But I thought it really interesting that she made a big point. Here she is, 26, 30 points ahead in the polls. And she still said, wanted to make sure that. The message was, I don't believe in defunding the police. Um, She said that Massachusetts was under-policed. She really didn't want to commit to, we've had police reform, like what more should we do? She kind of ducked and weaved on what should happen. She didn't want to talk about what should happen with the state police. So even here, where crime isn't really in your face every day, there's still, I think, there's still that feeling that you don't, uh, she doesn't want to be cast as some ultra progressive person who isn't serious about fighting crime. Yeah. And I did watch the first debate and she was very much, she was actually channeling Charlie Baker trying to be like, this is actually who I'm like, which was a fascinating dynamic in the whole debate. Uh, Just a couple more questions for you, Joan. The first one is you wrote an article over the summer where I don't, I don't think many people paid much attention to this because luckily nothing came of it. But there was the threat of a big strike on on railways. And luckily, it was averted and it was averted in large part because the Biden administration intervened. And by first the Biden administration, we we're talking about former Boston mayor Marty Walsh, who is now the secretary of labor. Not a name necessarily on the top of everyone's list when obviously if Biden runs, he's going to be the guy. But if he doesn't run, you have Harris and Buttigieg who are kind of on the top of people's list. And then the next would be like Warren or Klobuchar or Booker, people like that. But you said, Marty, kind of posed the question, Marty Walsh 2024, is is he someone that people, whether in Massachusetts or nationally, should be keeping more of an eye on? Well, first, I want to tell you that the um, that that labor thing is not it's not over yet. It's not a done deal because one union has said no to the deal. And I mean, I was listening to a report on NPR. That's how I'm getting my information. Um And I guess, you know, like there is I can't remember how many there are, but they all have to say yes before it's actually um, approved and it's, you know, it's, there's no strike and everything's averted, but it's not going to happen until after the midterm. So not to worry. Um, And in the end, it'll probably, you know, they have so much writing on it. They had so much, you know, they did their victory lap. How could they not have it happen? That would look really bad. I think Marty Walsh is an interesting character. I really do. Could he run for president? I don't think so. Um, I kind of wrote that sort of, you know, in a way just to be, you know, provocative, I guess. But there are people around him that are, I couldn't have written that without people around him, you know, sort of suggesting that there's a place for him on the ticket as a number two, and that he represents the kind of Democrat the Democrats need. You know, he's a a local guy, he's a hands-on guy, he's been a mayor, he's got a Boston accent. Um, you know, he's a connection to the working class that the Democrats need right now because they're been portrayed. And I don't think it's inaccurate. They've been portrayed as a party of the elites um, and that you need some ordinary people with extraordinary political skills who, you know, can sort of balance the ticket. You know, can a Marty Walsh from Dorchester, you know, really be a, a vice president? I mean, I don't I don't know. It was just something to sort of fool around with. But. People, you know, I people are 
thinking about it. I know Barney Walsh is thinking about it. And I give the guy credit in that he left a job that he loved. He went to Washington, a tough place. Um, and he's a key player in the Biden administration right now. So people should pay attention to him. Good. And then one one final question, and we couldn't let you go without this because this is where you won your Pulitzer covering this, is the MBTA, which is the, the public transportation system here in Massachusetts. If you live here in Massachusetts, you know very well that it's been a, more of a disaster than usual the last few months. So, Joan, any what, what can we do about this? Any fixes, any suggestions for the incoming Healy administration? Or, well, first, I, first yeah. I want to make clear that when I was on the spotlight team, you know, it was obviously it was a team of people. And I was a lowly um, researcher on that spotlight team who turned out to be very bad at getting lunches and coffee and stuff like that and nagged them and harassed them enough so that they let me, you know, do some reporting and wrote a couple parts of that series. So, you know, that really, that was um, a bunch of, it was mostly men there and they sort of empowered me or, or I forced myself onto them. Um, and I'm an orange line rider now. Now I take the orange line from Oak Grove to state street or Haymarket If I feel like walking a little bit further, I think it's terrible what's happened with the tea. And I think it's terrible. And I've written this that for some reason, you know, Teflon, Charlie Baker, um, it's not that I think you should blame people, but you should hold people accountable. And for whatever the reason, he's escaped accountability on this. And it's going to fall right into Maura Healy's lap, like what to do about the tea. And again, if I knew the answer to that, I wouldn't be writing a column. I'd be a transportation expert. But you can't have a city. You can't have a world-class city without world-class transportation. And I'm not like the, the biggest world traveler in the world, but I've been to a few places, including Seoul, Korea, South Korea, where they have like this amazing transportation system. So I don't know why we can't have it. I don't know why, but somebody ought to do something about it. <laughs> somebody ought to do something about it. That's a great point. Yeah, it, I, it's funny because when you wrote that, I I think the tagline I saw about it, or, you know, when you were part of the team that did the investigative reporting, the tagline was like the most expensive, least effective, like major city transportation. Have you seen it? Does it feel like it got any any better or are other places getting worse or where where are we where are we stacking up? We're, but, we're, we're still up there, actually. A couple weeks ago, I, I think it was. It was in the middle of the Orange Line shutdown in the ideas section of the globe. We did, we revisited the spotlights team story. And I actually wrote a piece um, that sort of basically said and went back and talked to some of the main, the players that were live then and still are older, but alive now. And the same problems persist. I think it's the second most expensive in the country now versus the first, you know, number one, but the combination of political interference, unions, and I don't hate unions, but they, you know, do have kind of a stranglehold on the way things are done there and how much things cost. And for whatever the reason, just a lack of, um, you know, sort of focus on Beacon Hill has the same problems from 40 years ago are persist today. And it's really sad. And to repeat, somebody should do something about it. So, yeah, good, couldn't, couldn't agree more. Do you, do uh, you guys? Do you guys take the tea? 
Yeah, I'm a red line guy, so that's I've always been on the red line. And, and at BC, the- you know, you must you must take the green line, right? Uh, I had well, I graduated now three years ago, and I primarily I'm a bus guy. Or this, I live in South Boston, so the seven bus into the city or or the eleven um, towards like South End back then. I just listened in on a um a committee, a MBTA, you know, subcommittee on safety in which the report yet, this was just yesterday. Um, the safety officer reported that in the month of August, there were 153 collisions involving buses. So be careful. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> well, that's not something to laugh at, but actually, yeah. So be careful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. At least, I mean, Ricky, at least your motor transportation isn't getting, you know, set on fire, caught on fire for every every couple of months so that, that's something um, yeah but yeah there are a lot of local so they're like contemplating some changes in the bus route so a lot of uh a lot of local furor here in south around where that 11 is going to run and if the seven gets more frequent you know it's it is the how the political interference for how the mbta structures and how it serves the city is is uh is it's fascinating to follow unfortunately it doesn't result in any better service or performance for the riders well i don't think enough politicians take the tea and that's part of the problem so when you take it and and i say that as someone who for years the globe was located on morrissey boulevard across from umass boston and i drove to work so i knew a lot about traffic but i didn't know much about the tea when the Globe relocated downtown to State Street, which I love, I became an Orange Line commuter. And suddenly I became very interested in how the Orange Line worked or didn't work. So you really have to use it to know its flaws and to want it to realize its promise. Yeah. And then go to places like Seoul or Tokyo yeah. and realize that like other places have figured this out. It's not, I can't be rocket science. Right. Um, all right. Yeah, Joan, that's all. That's all we got for you. And so again, thank you so much. That was, uh, that was great. So for the listener out there, Joan was worried about staying too long because she was worried about boring people. Um, I, I, I assured her that I was not worried about that at all. And certainly this was not a, I was not bored once during this conversation. So thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Well, it was a lot of fun to talk to you and thanks for thinking of me. So yeah, no, th- this was great. And so we'll definitely, if, if you want to keep up with uh, Joan's reporting again, she's at the Boston Globe, you can follow her. Joan, where can people follow you? You're on, you're on Twitter, right? I am at Joan underscore Vinaki and um, Joan.Vinaki at globe.com. Beautiful. So, yeah. Yeah. So you can follow her along there. Great. All right. Thanks again, Joan. We really appreciate it. All right. Have a great weekend. Bye. Yeah. Thanks. You too. Well, that was another treat. She was wonderful and hearing her perspective and expertise as someone that's been in around Massachusetts, Boston, national politics for 30 plus years was amazing. We continue to feel very lucky that people like this take some time and speak with us. If I, Ricky, if I had like a unifying theme of what she was saying is people vote and people care about what affects them directly. And so just like bouncing off that last point is that people, including you, me, and, and Joan, don't care about the tea unless we're, we're taking it. And she made the same point with crime, where like you don't really care about crime unless you are the one in your neighborhood is the one that's being affected by it. And I think that goes to the national level too with inflation versus abortion, where like 
there are people out there whose lives are being affected by abortion laws, and that's what they care about the most. But there's far more people out there who are being affected by inflation, and that's why that it's become the number one issue over the last few weeks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a little bit of that, like, what it what is this saying? Like, all politics are local. Local. Tip O'Neill. <laughs> Who would have put the over-under of Tip O'Neill references on this, on this podcast? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, it it's interesting because it's, like, those types of perceptions really feel like they govern what people are thinking when they go into the polls. But I think a little bit onto your question is, like, nobody's talking about the situation in Ukraine, it's like, well, if we're really thinking about how do we meaningfully tackle inflation, we have to think about this situation that's going on that, as you said, like global energy prices, you know, supply chain routes, a lot of that has to do with what's going on between Russia and Ukraine. But no one's talking about that. But they are saying, you know, inflation is the worst and Democrats are to blame. But what is the solution? No one, no one's offering a solution. And and I think that that is really just an interesting framing of democracy in general like how like obviously when things are going good incumbents are you know that's that's a that's an easy answer is that we just keep just you know if it's not broken don't fix it but when it is broken and we don't necessarily have the solutions to fix it then it's often like well whatever let's just do something different and that's and I think that that's I think that that is uh, it, that feels interesting. But yeah, to your to your point, the perception versus like, yeah, what is impacting me today and who do I blame for it is uh, is such an undercurrent of just like everything in politics, but often has really nothing to do with the people that we're electing, which is scary. Yeah. And uh yeah, we've mentioned this a million times, like how little the president has to do with the economy. But the pre- as history has borne out, presidents are judged by the economy. Like your people's president's approval ratings rise and fall with the state of the economy. And we're certainly seeing that this year. And I guess that just goes to a larger question. I think it's frustrating for people like me and you and probably a lot of our listeners who are really tuned into this stuff where it's like, I actually want to hear solutions instead of just like pointing to the problem on on either side. And obviously it's always the power party that's out of power. That's pointing to here's a problem connected to the people that are in power. And I think that's a, it's a winning message because if it's not working right now, like you said, let's just do something different in hopes that it'll be fixed magically. But I, that's frustrating. I I did listen to the first deal Healy debate and that didn't teach me anything. No one, no one proposed any policies. It was just like who could hit each other the hardest on, on different things. And obviously you see the same thing at the national level where whether it's inflation or crime, like we talked with Kornacki about uh, the Wisconsin race between Johnson and Barnes. And all you hear in that race is like, look, look, Barnes is soft on crime. And Barnes is like, he's, he's just, he would green light all Joe Biden's terrible economic policies. And it's like, Oh, okay, Ron, you are a current Senator. Like, well, what are you doing to fix these issues? But like, no one cares about that. And I think it's, like I said, it's frustrating for people that are super tuned into this stuff. But like, we also have to be realistic that the vast majority of Americans are not super tuned into this stuff. And that's not a that's not necessarily a criticism of Americans. Again, they have more important things to be doing in terms of like working and feeding their families and all, all those sorts of things. But like how it takes a really skilled political person to be able to communicate not just a problem, but here's a solution and here's why you should vote for me because I would contribute to this solution. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I think 
I, I mean, on the sort of the roads and the bridges issue, maybe one area we could have explored a little more with Joan was just like the idea, you know, that Democrats are trying to separate themselves from the stimulus and in, in large parts now, even some of the like the large infrastructure bill, because people have in their minds while well, spending equals inflation. But inflation is not just happening here. It's happening everywhere. And in fact, it's probably almost happening less here than in other places, because what you're seeing from a currency perspective is that the U.S. dollar is way up compared to the euro, compared to, you know, the uh, I, I don't know, compared to like most foreign currencies, our currency is is elevated, which actually, you know, net net means that inflation in other places is worse because it's devaluing their currency. While they didn't all do the same kind of spending things that we did here, certainly spending in an inflationary time doesn't necessarily help anything, but it may not may or may not be the source of the problem. So this is, you know, it's exactly what you're saying. Just like the the framing is what feels like politicians are like, that's my moneymaker. As long as I can just say Democrats tax and spend, spending is inflation. This is, you know, the problem. And the solution is to just not have Democrats. That is an interesting, uh, but like it, I think it is intuitive, regardless of the fact is that it may not actually be true, um, which which I think is is better. It's like almost better to just make sense like this, therefore that, than it is to actually be right. <laughs> because the problems are too complicated and the solutions are too complicated and it's too hard to communicate it, right? And so you just seize on messages that people can understand. And that's that's just politics, right? I mean, that, that's, that's no criticism of anybody particularly I mean the Republicans are doing it more this year because they're the party out of power but any any party that's out of power does the same thing but yeah it's, it's certainly like a little bit frustrating um yeah and I think this kind of this conversation also reminded me of what Steve had said what he'd be watching when we so we talked to him I guess three four weeks ago now and we said what should we, we be watching out for he was like what are what's the foremost thing on people's minds when they go into the polls. And it does appear at this point that Republicans are kind of winning the messaging battle with inflation, crime, immigration, that seems to be more on, on people's minds. And look, I, today's Friday, the, the 21st, like early voting's already started in several States, uh, including like a swing state, like Georgia, early voting starts in Massachusetts tomorrow. We're, we're two weeks out at this point. And It'll be. I mean, certainly things can come up in the next two weeks. Like we've seen that in the Georgia Senate race, certainly, and there there are things that could start to change people's minds. But as people begin to go to the polls, it seems to be swinging back right, from my perspective. Yeah, I I think that element of it, um, especially for your your quote unquote independents or your undecided voters, in terms of like when they are going to make the decision to vote, I think is an interesting one because we're now in our like second phase of the remote, but like the real remote voting landscape, which was very much an experiment in 2020, I think continues to be so now, but there are more people who are sort of aware of the options and how to do it. And so I'll be interested to see how, like if they start, you know, releasing some numbers around who's done the early voting, you know, when did they do it? If they're doing it in the second week of October versus the first week of November, is that having like a material impact or was it already along party lines? I think there's, I think it's, yeah, 
a lot of fascinating stories that are making this midterm cycle pretty unique. Um, and will be interesting to see if the if the pollsters are getting it right or or sort of wrong as they have been uh, <laughs> in the past couple of cycles. Yeah. Well, Ricky, the next time we talk on this podcast, you might be a married man. <laughs> I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> I, I hope I hope indeed that I that I will be. Otherwise, uh I'll be in some I'll be in some trouble. I think I'll be in some trouble. We'll have to make sure that ring gets here on time. That's right. That's right. <laughs> All right. Well, uh we'll see you. We'll talk to people in a couple of weeks, but uh, thank you again to Joan for being on and for everybody who's who's listened over the our last few episodes again we felt incredibly lucky and it's been just fun talking to such smart interesting people yeah who would have known be you the formula for massachusetts (laughs) (laughs) absolutely all right buddy well i'll see you i'll see you in person soon but um i'll talk to you about about this stuff in a couple weeks that sounds good we'll see you then everybody make sure if you haven't already get get your plan together for voting Till then, go vote. Yeah. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue, debating all the issues of the day. No agenda, not yet. Talking heads Running around till we forget Where it was we began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give For the hope I used to find In a case of lion's head and Folks of different minds Because even though it did not share as we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments In an early morning buzz Need an early morning buzz Learn the hard way But to those who would die upon that hill Quiet truth is better Than rain So we're online We seem to have forgotten Values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, the morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. And folks of different minds, because though we didn't share opinions, we share loud American ideals. Friends made over arguments. In an early morning bus, I need an early morning bus. There's hope behind the bluster, cause though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing the human for the politics, it's time to find a better way to disagree. Some days you win, some days you leave your ego through. But what I wouldn't give for the hope 
used to find it Chase the lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Though we did not share opinions, we share that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz.